0: Well, let's get you up to date now on what is happening on the first of two trials for the two Canadians that have been detained in China. We know Michael Spavor had a closed door hearing. Uh, International diplomats were in the vicinity of this, but let's find out exactly what happened. Joining us now is Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Abigail.
1: Good morning.
0: So what do we know about what happened here?
1: Well, the answer is we know very little. We know that the trial took about two hours uh, and we know according to a Chinese court website that a verdict will be posted at a later date so there was no verdict. Uh, you described the scene absolutely correctly in terms of these diplomats who showed up hoping to get in. We know in the case of Canada that Canada has been uh, asking for access for quite some time to both of these trials and were uh, denied access. Uh, but it wasn't just Canada. There were uh, about 10... Uh, uh, diplomats from a variety of countries, uh, Germany, France, the UK, Australia, all there trying to get access to the courtroom, but no one allowed in, no uh, members of the public, no media. You saw some pictures of uh, Chinese officials pushing journalists' cameras uh, back, even outside of the court building. Uh, so really uh, little answers in terms of what actually happened inside.
0: Okay. So it's, well, it's good to know that other, you know, international allies were standing kind of with Canada on this thing today.
1: Well, yes, and 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 that's a good uh, segue to raise uh, what's going on in Alaska, which is this uh, first meeting between the new Biden administration and China. Uh, meetings are underway with the U.S. Secretary of State, and everybody is kind of waiting to see if anything will come out as as in terms of whether the U.S. has raised this case at this meeting. Uh, no confirmation that that was going to happen, although the U.S. has been supportive uh, of this call to release these two uh, Canadians, and and some believe that. Uh, the timing is not coincidental that this trial was suddenly announced uh, ahead right ahead of this uh, meeting with the us so some believe china may be trying to use this as a bargaining chip in what is a very complicated political situation uh, outside of uh, of uh, michael spavor waiting to hear his fate uh today uh, we also saw a very strongly worded statement coming from the chinese embassy here in ottawa issued today uh the those statements you know the language has has been uh, uh, pointed at times over the past two years, but very strongly worded today, calling Canada hypocritical and arrogant with an exclamation mark, uh, talking about how the Foreign Minister, Mark Garneau, uh, issued a statement talking about the lack of transparency in these proceedings. Again, Canadian diplomats not even allowed inside, as they uh, say is their right to do so under the Vienna Conventions and under their agreement with China. But when Mark Garneau said that there was a lack of transparency in the process here, well, this statement from the Chinese embassy calls that, quote, fact distortion. So we are expecting to hear from the prime minister later this morning here in Ottawa. We will see how Justin Trudeau uh, chooses to respond.
0: That was one trial. What do we know about the other trial when that's supposed to happen?
1: That's right. So the trial of Michael Kovrig is expected to happen on Monday. Uh, a, a similar situation in terms of uh, Canada still trying to push for access to that trial and so far being denied. So we will wait uh, and see if Canada is able to get access to that trial, if anybody is allowed in, and, and also what the, what the verdict is, uh, when that verdict will be released in in the case of Michael Spavor, and how fast that trial will go for Michael Kovrig.
0: All right. Still a tense situation, it sounds like. Abigail, thank you. you.
1: Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi.
0: You know, there's pretty much an awareness month for everything these days, right? But this one, I like. This one in March, I feel it is near and dear to my heart. It's Caffeine Awareness Month. Boy, that is something we know a lot about here on this shift, working the morning show. Uh, And you know what? 6am on a Friday morning. Sure. Perfect time to talk about the need for caffeine out there. And there's all sorts of interesting stats about this. Joining us now is Andy DeSantis, registered dietitian with the Canadian Beverage Association. Good morning, Andy. Hi, how's it going? I'm good. Well, I've had a couple of cups of caffeine in the form of tea. So I am good. How about you this morning?
2: Yeah, you can probably tell by my own energy level and my voice that I am halfway through one of my own. So, uh, yeah, I'm all right. I'm happy I'm on the, uh, on the East Coast, though, so it's a little bit later here.
0: Oh, please, 9 o'clock. You should be just fine. Uh, let's, yeah. talk, let's talk about our need for caffeine. How addicted are Canadians to having their caffeine?
2: Well, look, I mean, the, uh, I'll say about right that. I mean, the word, the word uh, addiction, I, that's a very, very technical word. So I wouldn't say Canadians are addicted to caffeine, I, I, would, I would even say it's necessarily possible to be, to be addicted to caffeine. We certainly can, like, you know, have some level of, you know, comfort level and, you know, a mild dependence on it. But, you know, most Canadians, are, like, you know, the, the vast majority of Canadians don't actually consume caffeine over what Health Canada considers the safe, moderate level. So I would say yeah, we're doing quite all right.
0: What is the safe, moderate level from Health Canada?
2: Yeah, it's uh, 400 milligrams is the, uh, is the technical amount. We can talk about what that looks like as well. Yeah, what does that look like? So, yeah. So, basically, you know, a cup of coffee that you make at home, you know, 250 milliliters approximately has about 80 milligrams. You know, that same cup that you have at the coffee shop has a bit more, closer to 150 and, you know, it scales up and down from there, depending on the exact drink. Like your tea, cup of tea, about 40 milligrams. So that will be half of a cup of coffee. So, you know, it takes quite a few to get to that number.
0: Wait, I could have like 10 cups of tea and I would still be within the Health Canada guidelines? Well, I mean,
2: it gets a little bit technical there. So, yeah, absolutely. Now, everyone responds to caffeine differently. You know what I mean? So when we, when we throw this 400 milligram number around, what we're saying here is, That's the vast majority of people will have no negative health consequences for having caffeine at that level. Doesn't mean that some people can't have more and be just fine. Doesn't mean that some people might, you know, get a little bit jittery if they have less. So it's individualized for sure.
0: So what what kind of impact does caffeine have on our body, Andy?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, the main effect it has is I like, well, I'm trying to get too, too scientific, but, you know, we, in, our, in our central nervous system, we have something called uh, an adenosine receptor. Um, we have a bunch of them, but what caffeine does is it kind of temporarily blocks this receptor. And this, what adenosine receptors do is they slow our body down. So by blocking that, by blocking the adenosine receptor, our bodies can, you know, speed up a little bit. And that's where we get that, that light stimulant effect.
0: Mm, That, that effect that we all seem to be so addicted to.
2: Yes. The effect that we all seem to enjoy that allows us to, you know, feel perhaps less tired, more alert, you know what I mean? Perform better, uh, you know, in physical activity. If we, if we use caffeine wisely and, and things like that.
0: Okay. So then is there something in caffeine that makes it addictive or are we just addicted to the kind of wake up stimulant effect that it gives us?
2: I th- well, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot going on there, right? Because for many people, you know, coffee and tea are, are you know, and, and other caffeinated beverages are, you know, part of, part of rituals. There's a lot of taste going on. Um, you know, for example, I'd like to, I don't know what your, your beverage of choice is. I, I happen to quite like cold brews. And there's a lot going on there, you know, aside from just caffeine. But certainly, yes, it does, you know, wake us up in the morning. It does offer that, you know, enhanced, you know, enhanced alertness and, 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 like, and wakefulness. And, uh, and also, you know, if we're talking coffee and tea specifically, it also comes with a, an incredible amount of antioxidants. In fact, uh, more, more than uh, many different types of food as well.
0: Right. I'm a tea drinker. So that's just, right. I'm a two cup a day tea drinker. So what about like the other impact, like of having that on us? Like, is it okay? Is it, what about the sugar and all of that? Is that what causes the problem then with caffeine is if we're having too much milk and sugar or cream and sugar in those coffees and teas?
2: I mean, I don't think by default that having, you know, milk or sugar in your coffee is, you know, is an issue, you know what I mean? And, and like the broader context of, you know, what someone is, is like consuming throughout the whole day, you know, a splash of a uh, cream and uh, you know, a tablespoon of, or a teaspoon or a tablespoon of sugar in your coffee. I'm not, as a, you know, as a dietitian, I'm not necessarily concerned by that. It depends on the bigger picture. Um, I don't necessarily you know. And again, I don't necessarily think that, you know, in the broader context, you know, for the vast majority of the population, there's a caffeine problem per se. I think only a small number of people consume caffeine over that, that number. And that's not to say that even within that group of people, that uh that many of them suffer negative consequences as a result so it really is individualized you know what i mean um but on a population level i
1: think we're doing okay
0: Hmm. interesting all right well andy thanks so much for your time
1: yeah thanks for having me this is mornings with simi
0: Uh, Yes, Canada has been lagging behind. It's been an effort to try to get as many doses as we possibly can here in this country. And now we are going to be getting some help on that, some much needed help on that. So we heard from the White House spokesperson yesterday, Jen Psaki, that the United States is going to be pitching in and helping out here, sending one and a half million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to Canada. They are, of course, incentivized to do this, to help out Canada and Mexico, so that we can get that border open between those three countries as soon as possible to get trade flowing again. So this is so many questions this brings out, right? Like how how quickly is this going to get here? How soon can it be distributed? What is the timeline like for opening the border? All sorts of questions about it. But let's talk about the impetus behind this. Jennifer Johnson joins us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Jennifer. Good
3: morning, Simi. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, this is just a great topic because I know this is very welcome news. What brought this about? Why is the Biden administration helping Canada out?
3: Well, Simi, I don't know what's going behind (laughs) the (laughs) scenes. I mean, I think this is, if I had to guess, I think this is a little peace deal over, you know, the pipeline situation uh, for Canada and on the Mexico side. I think this is a nice way of saying, can we slow the tide of the unaccompanied minors coming across the border? Um, On paper, this appears to be, uh, you know, we've got 7 million AstraZeneca doses ready to go. And this is a vaccine that still does not have um, federal use authorization in the United States. And so, you know the Biden administration is saying, okay, 1.5 million are going to Canada, 2.5 to Mexico. Behind the scenes, I think this is an olive branch, you know, that be, you know, over the right. over the uh, pipe, over the pipeline situation.
0: Interesting. So I I didn't realize that that they haven't yet approved the AstraZeneca vaccine. So they're not actually losing anything. They're not taking any vaccines away no. from Americans on this.
3: No. And so there's 7 million doses ready to go. And there's going to be about 30 million sometime in April that can be administered. And, and as I said, AstraZeneca not only doesn't have federal use authorization by the FDA, the food and drug administration here in the U S it's not even on the books yet. There's no, you know, there's, there's no date for the panel, the advisory panel to take it up and then for the full FDA to take up that. So, you know, like you said, it's not like the United States is losing anything. U S also, they believe has enough vaccines for everybody by May between the Pfizer vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson and the Moderna vaccine. So, yeah.
0: Okay. So what does this say then about the timeline for getting that border open between Canada and the United States? Is that very much on the agenda?
3: You know, I would, I would say it's going to be a while still. I think that America obviously is way ahead in terms of getting people vaccinated um, but I think that they, the Biden administration wants to take a look at where we are May 1st and who actually hasn't gotten vaccinated. And, and are the vaccines contributing to a significant decrease in new cases and a significant decrease in deaths? I mean, we're still seeing states that have an uptick in cases, particularly case, uh, states that have reopened, such as Maryland, where I live. So our governor a couple of weeks ago reopened everything. So people can go into restaurants, there are no limits in the number of people, there are no masks required, and there have been an uptick in cases. So I think the CDC is going to take this slowly and and assess where we are um, in the next few weeks and the next couple of months, because, you know, it still is not proven how really effective these vaccines are against the variants that are all over this country.
0: Right. It's a bit of an experiment right now. Jennifer, thanks so much for that.
3: Okay, Simi, Have nice a talking great day. to you,
0: thanks. Yeah, nice to talk to thanks. you, too. That's Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington correspondent.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Well,
0: let's talk about what's been going on in Penticton in recent weeks. The provincial government has said they will now determine the future of a homeless shelter in Penticton and move forward with it despite a decision from the elected council in that community. So does that mean it's going ahead or not? And what does that mean for the relationship between Penticton council and the mayor and the provincial government? Well, joining us now is John Vaslaki, who is the mayor of Penticton. Thank you very much for being here.
4: Thank you for having me. How have
0: we gotten to this point?
4: Um, well, it's, it's really complicated matter. Um, we had a, uh, an agreement with BC Housing for that location for the emergency shelter, um, and that's what it is. It's an emergency uh, shelter, short term, uh, from November the first, 2021, to uh, the end of March of 2022, um, with no. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? With without any. Um, uh, information from uh, from b c housing all of a sudden they came back to us that they wanted to extend um, that agreement that we had, uh, even though they knew that uh, it was a short term um, location uh, and consequently city council uh, along with the vast majority of of the community uh, weren't uh, agreeable uh to that um, demand. Uh, from BC Housing, and it consequently was turned down uh, at that time on March the second. Right.
0: So and again,
4: it was turned down uh, last Tuesday, uh, City Council's meeting.
0: So the response then from the minister on this, David Eby, has been to say that they will move forward with this. You know, it sounds like they're going to override what what Council has asked for.
4: Well, uh, I guess they will try. They'll try and use that big, long, heavy stick uh, on the um, elected council of the city of Penticton. Um, We're a democratic country, uh, and things should be done democratically. Um, We were elected uh, to govern in the city of Penticton and no one else, just us. Uh, And we govern according to the wishes of our community and not the wishes Minister eB uh, or the provincial government, or any government as far as that goes it doesn 't matter uh, what party uh, they belong to to me makes no difference
0: so Mayor uh, Vaslak, let me ask you then where are the homeless people supposed to go what what is being done for them
4: uh, uh, there's nothing putting there are no plans by BC housing to do anything with them so Consequently, what uh, the city staff at the City of Penticton have, do, have done, and they put in many, many hours and many days uh, looking for uh, replacement of, of that location, which is not ideal um, uh, for for that spot because of all the seniors that are living around it and all the businesses um, and the misbehavior um, that's uh, from the people that live in, in in that facility. But our staff has gone around and spent many hours and many days to locate um, new locations for them, and we brought it to the attention of uh, 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 BC Housing last Tuesday. Um, many, many of the motels in the community are willing uh, to sit down and negotiate with a BC, um, a BC Housing uh, to... Um, to take over uh, those uh, so the forty-two souls that are living in in um, in that location in those motels, and I can assure you that the live, uh, their living um, uh, style is going to be greatly improved. Uh, in a new locations, rather than where they are at the present time. So but, uh, we we don't seem to be getting any cooperation from BC Housing.
0: Okay, so just to be clear on that, then you have the, Penticton has brought suggestions back to BC Housing to say here we can do
4: X, Y, and Z, and there has yes. been no response on that. No, uh, and we we made that uh, that announcement publicly at last tuesday evening meeting uh we still haven't heard uh from bc housing in writing uh as to what their plans are uh for the future
0: mm, are you hopeful that things are going to get worked out
4: absolutely um, we don't want to have this conflict between uh, ourselves and, and the provincial government. We we are partners in everything that happens uh, in the province, not just the city of Penticton, but all municipalities uh, in the province. Uh, you know, the only thing we need is a little cooperation and a little respect uh, from uh, the government above us uh, that are supposed to be looking after our citizens. We are all equal, and everybody should be treated with respect, um, and to make sure that we live happy, safe lives in our communities.
0: So it got to, it got to be quite contentious, though,
4: didn't it, Mayor Vasiljev? Absol- absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It- uh, and I can tell you, I don't sugarcoat anything. Uh, I say it the way it is because I believe that the truth should come out uh, and everybody should know exactly what's happening and not be hiding behind closed doors.
0: So what did you think about what the Minister Eb had to say when he said, listen, if, you, if we don't do this, you're going to end up with people in the park, uh, and that's a very difficult situation, as cities like Vancouver and Victoria have already found out.
4: Yeah. Uh, um, uh, my community went berserk over that one. Um, you know, he's instigating uh, people to break the law and come to, to Penticton because a minister is going to give them a tent and a sleeping bag to, to live in, um, in, in a city. That's not right. That's unethical. Uh, and for a minister to, to make those comments is just ridiculous. Um, people don't like it. We are losing trust uh, in in our ministers, how are we going to go and vote next time around knowing what the, their capabilities are and how they can harm a community? We are a tourist-oriented uh, community and a senior-oriented community. If they continue to do what he's planning to do uh, to the city of Penticton, what's going to happen to our economy? Uh, and that's very, very important to the people that live here. We already have the lowest revenue um, income uh, revenue for uh, our families in the city we 're one of i believe we 're seventh in the province A- and that 's not that 's not adequate uh, for for our community to live uh, responsibly and uh, to live and raise their kids and send them to school and all those good things that each family wants uh, of their children it's just not it 's not going to happen if we continue to go down this road and uh, and derail, uh, the economy that we have at the present time.
0: Right. So then Mayor Vasilaki, are you still, though, you're, are you confident that these 42 people who need assistance will get assistance? They're not going to be left without anything.
4: Well, no, we're going to have, uh, uh, the transition is going to be, um, uh, I mean, BC housing has to come forward, their staff and, uh, our staff have to get together and come up with a plan. They keep doing all these things that they want to do without a plan in place. We want a long-term plan uh, for the city of Penticton. And I believe that all other communities in the province wish the same thing. Mm -hmm. But BC Housing, they, they, they demand Uh, things of the municipalities, but no financing behind it, nor do they have a plan that's going to be followed for what's in the best interest of those folks that live in these facilities. It's just not there. It's non-existent.
0: Well, Mayor Vasilaki, thank you for your time on that this morning.
4: Thank you very much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Well, let's talk about a story you just heard in the news there. More information coming out about the structure, the salaries of the Surrey Police Force. Joining us now is Janet Brown, our senior global news reporter. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Simmy. So what have we found out?
5: Well, uh, our listeners will remember uh, it was this day last week that we brought them the story about what one of the deputy chiefs in the new Surrey Police Service was earning, and that was thanks to a Freedom of Information request Filed by the group Keep the RCMP in Surrey, they filed it to the Surrey Police Board. And we found out, thanks to them, that Jennifer Highland was making a base salary of 235000 And with bonuses, etc., she could make up to 277000 But the big question remains, Simi, what is the top dog making? What is the chief making at mm-hmm. the Surrey Police Force? So... Uh, I put that question out to the police board and the police service, and I was told that I may have to file an FOI like keep the RCMP in Surrey did. But you know what? Lo and behold, a few days later, they came back to me with the information, and maybe this is an effort to try and be more transparent because you certainly wouldn't get that information just uh, in an email from the RCMP, for example.
0: Okay, so what did we find out? (laughs) How much is the new chief making?
5: Norm Lipinski's base salary is $285,000 a year and the board says his potential rewards could be nearly $335,000 a year. Uh, The board says, and it took a very uh, lengthy process to explain to me how they came about that salary, the board says it undertook an examination of police executive compensation across the country to establish, quote, our philosophy and our structure. It says uh, there was a comparator group composed of 10 civic and regional police departments whom the board determined performed similar work in a similar-sized organization. And among those departments examined were Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, and Ottawa. And the board then set a pay target as a result of those examinations for its chief here in Surrey and the three deputy chiefs and they say they landed in the 65 percentile. So the board says the chief in Surrey, the three deputies are not the highest paid in Canada, but they are also not the lowest paid either. Uh, The board went further to say we stand behind our compensation policies. We recognize the importance of offering competitive wages and benefits that are in line with other police agencies in Canada.
0: Hmm. Interesting, because those other police agencies have a lot more officers than the Surrey Police Force has, not just at this point, but they're planning for, what, 800 officers in Surrey, something like that?
5: Well, Simi, let's talk about what those other officers are making. Uh, by comparison, according to the National Police Federation, an assistant RCMP commissioner, which is equal to a chief, would make about $220,000 a year if if that person was achieving all the benchmarks. Vancouver's police chief for the year ending 2019, those are the latest numbers I could get my hands on. Adam Palmer, he made 363000 Calgary Police Chief makes between 244000 and 299000 and those figures were from last year.
0: Hmm. Okay. Also, those forces are all larger. Just taking a look at the number of officers on hand, too. They all have about 1,500 officers, which begs the question, that's a lot of money going out for salaries um, where there's still no officers that are being hired, right? There's
5: just the couple of deputy chiefs and a chief right now. Uh, that's right. And yesterday, a news release went out too, though that uh, three more inspectors, three additional inspectors, were also hired. Uh, two years ago, in the 200-page report, Simi, that the Surrey Police Service, when the Surrey Police Service was announced, the city said the start-up date for the new police service was going to be April 1st of this year. So just in a few weeks' time. Hmm. Uh, but two weeks ago, the Surrey RCMP officer in charge, Brian Edwards, in his March newsletter, said there was no date yet for the transition to take place. Um, And as we say, the Surrey Police Service keeps building up and out. Yesterday, we said it was announced three inspectors hired, the three deputy chiefs hired, the chief, etc. So plans are moving along, things are happening. But in terms of when, quote unquote, boots will be on the ground, we don't know yet.
0: Okay, and that's that's so interesting, too. Let's talk about this misinformation thing that came out. Uh, This was from the Surrey Police Board?
5: Yes, I mean, this is really curious. Because, yeah. yeah, this is interesting because when I reached out to the board asking for the chief salary, uh, the board also issued me a two-page statement that they uh, scripted, and it is signed by all the members of the police board. And, of course, the chair is the mayor, Doug McCallum. And let me read you a little bit from it. This is curious. It says there are many competing interests that are coming to the foreground as we move through the establishment of the police department this has led to misinformation being circulated which is of concern to us while we support diversity of opinion it is important to ensure information is available to the public recently it says the police service launched a website Facebook page and Twitter account so uh, that sparked my interest so I reached out to them again and I said you know what what do you really mean by this misinformation can you explain more Uh Uh, asking for clarification the communications manager for the Surrey Police Service came back and responded saying in a statement quote it is difficult to identify an originating point where misinformation was started but we do know misinformation is circulating.
0: What it, I don't so, understand that statement because they have the opportunity to set the record straight. We are all listening. And yet, if there's misinformation, why haven't they corrected it?
5: I, I find that really puzzling. And I was curious to know whether they actually meant the group Keep the RCMP in Surrey, which has been fighting so hard for so long against moving To a civic police force is it them that they feel is creating this misinformation is it is it an individual is it what is it is it twitter yeah i don't i don't know and obviously i couldn't get to the bottom of it but i found that very curious misinformation and of course as the media members of the media as a reporter i am trying to get to the bottom of that and and putting out all the information i possibly can so um, you know, I don't yeah. think I'm putting out any misinformation. So who is it? What is yeah. it? Uh, what organization is it? So uh, yeah, that still has to be answered. Very interesting.
0: It is very interesting. So okay, so we're learning more about the salary structure here. So once again, the police chief in Surrey is making how much?
5: His base salary, Norm Lipinski, 285000 a year. And the board says his potential rewards could be nearly 335000 a year. Hmm. Okay, we'll
0: have to see what Surrey residents feel about that. Before we let you go, though, Janet, we just want to say congratulations. It's your anniversary oh. this
5: week. <laughs> it is 20 years. And uh, before, thank you, Simi. And before that, I, I was at CKNW for nine years before taking a four year break. So it's been, a, it's been a long time. And it's been a great time. And I'm still passionate about what I do and love the people I work with, too. So thanks so much. Well, listen, so
0: in total, you're talking 29 years you've been here?
5: Twenty-nine years at CKNW. I was first hired, and uh, Gord McDonald. What when and you were like ten were years
0: old? Is that when you were hired? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I
5: think it was about I don't know twenty-five, twenty-six.
4: Wait uh, a minute. You
0: said Gord McDonald hired you, so he's also been here that long too.
5: Um. Actually, it wasn't Gord McDonald. It was John Ashbridge. Oh, a lot of legend. our listeners will remember John Ashbridge. But Gord McDonald and myself were hired around the same time, and we're both still here. So I Just guess love that- it. That's you make my day. Reflection. thanks.
0: <laughs> well, congratulations. <laughs> Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Simi. Bye-bye.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Well, let's talk about uh, frontline workers getting their vaccination because yesterday we heard a new program being rolled out with the AstraZeneca vaccine that is now available, that all sorts of people will move to the front of the line. Teachers, they were thrilled to be part of that group. Police officers, firefighters, you name it. Not on the list, though, transit operators. And when you think about it, they are on the front lines of this out there every single day. I don't know how they don't qualify as frontline workers. And uh, quite frankly, they don't understand either. So let's talk now with Gavin McGarrigal, the Western Regional Director of Unifor. Gavin, thanks for joining us this morning.
6: Yeah, good morning, Simi.
0: So have you gotten any kind of explanation in the last 24 hours about this?
6: Well, you know we have to trust the science we have to trust where they're pointing to, uh, but it was certainly um uh, quite a blow on national transit operator appreciation day for the transit uh workers to find out that they weren't going to be in this first batch. We are encouraged though that you know we've heard uh from 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 the government that there is many more doses coming, and that certainly transit workers should be prioritized moving forward. You know, we'd certainly like to hear something more from the ministers uh, directly on that because a lot of transit workers are, are quite upset. I got a number of uh, text messages last night from uh, people who were saying that they were crying driving home. and They're wondering, you know, are they really uh, COVID heroes when they've been out there? And don't forget, Sammy, last year they were facing the threat of uh 1200 layoffs as well and trying to deal with ppe and passengers and you know reducing the space on the bus adding the space on the bus so it's been a very stressful year and to find this out on the one day that's supposed to uh, be about appreciating transit operators is a real uh, a real uh real blow to morale out there
0: yeah that's rough how has it been though for workers gavin like what is it like for them and they, what they've told you in terms of dealing with the public
6: well, you have to just think of a normal day of a transit operator. I mean, they are having that bus constantly refreshed uh, with brand new passengers all the time. There are people that don't follow the protocols properly. People, you know, that don't wear their masks properly on the bus. And as we've mentioned before, there's no security to help them with that. Um, and you have to think about who they're transporting to. They're transporting the most vulnerable population. There are transporting people who don't have any other option. Transit is their option. Uh, so whether it's healthcare workers or, or people who are uh, needed to make the economy run, um, you know, those people, many of them, take transit and so our members want to feel as safe as possible they take their job very seriously and they want to get people around uh but it's one thing to be called essential for all these months and praised, and then another thing to find out where you're at on the list so we just have to trust the science trust to where they're pointing to uh but we do understand that uh you know in the next few weeks uh, hopefully things will improve
0: yeah what are the next steps then to make sure that in the next few weeks things improve
6: well, you know, we uh, we understand that the the province is securing doses, um, you know, all wherever they can. As they mentioned yesterday, we know that uh, the announcement from the United States is important as well. And we know that uh, people do value transit operators there. But there's, as you know, a, a committee that is, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry has, and they're looking at all of the data to find out what's the best way forward. We we certainly, you know, we get calls, as you can imagine, from all of our membership everywhere. And, of course, every worker uh, that's that's out there on the front lines every day, uh, you know, wants to be vaccinated. So we don't want to be uh, interfering with the science and what is the best way to protect the whole population. Uh, but certainly, I think it's, it's really really a no-brainer that uh, when you look at front-facing employees, transit employees uh, are facing tens of thousands of people every day all over the province. And And so it makes sense to us.
0: How many workers are we talking about here? So if we were to say, okay, bus drivers, you definitely move to the front of the line. How many people are we talking about?
6: Well, I think TransLink has, you know, roughly 10,000 employees overall. We have about 5,000 members that we represent there. If you look in Victoria, the transit uh, system there, uh, and don't forget handy darts as well. Is uh, about eight hundred, nine hundred, a thousand uh, members. So, you know, I would say it's probably somewhere in the range of twenty thousand uh, workers, maybe thirty thousand for the whole province. Um, so, it's not, it's not staggering amounts, but it is a significant chunk. And. And, you know, when they added up uh, the priority list that they released yesterday with the number of doses they had available, uh, you know, you very quickly uh, eat up that list. So, you know, in the next tranche, we're certainly uh, hoping that uh, public transit operators are are put on that list. All right, you know, so- and certainly with, with discussions I've had with government, they understand the importance of transit. So we've just got to get that understanding into actual reality.
0: That's what I was going to ask you then. So what do you do now to make sure that you kind of keep transit operators front of mind for the government as more vaccine becomes available?
6: We will be certainly uh, speaking. I'll be meeting with the transportation minister next week. In fact, we have a a large Unifor delegation that is going to be uh, involved in a a lobby next week of almost the entire um, um, uh, cabinet. Uh, Many, uh, many workers were talking about paid sick leave. We're talking about the need to organize and we'll certainly be talking about the need to make sure that these transit operators, Operators are on that priority list. Uh, It makes sense and it's what they deserve. And we think it actually helps to reduce the risk to the overall population as well.
0: Is that what you tell the workers too when they are calling you upset about this news?
6: Yeah, it's never easy to be a union leader, Simi. We have to do the best we can to represent our members. And, you know, to all of the operators out there, we are pushing on every door we can. We are pushing as hard as we can. And we're not going to let up. uh, And, you know, we'll see where that takes us. At the end of the day, I think that, you know, a lot of the decision is going to be driven by the science. uh, But, you know, certainly uh, we think that uh, transit operators, just by the sheer interactions they have, the vulnerable populations that they're transporting, uh, the people that don't have other options. It's just one more important uh, cog in the wheel to make sure that as we reopen, we can do so safely and that the frontline workers are, are the most protected as we do that.
0: Gavin, thanks so much for your time.
6: Thanks again, Simi.
1: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Lots of discussion today about the trials of the two Michaels, two Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. One of them has had the trial, no verdict in that, the other still waiting. And of course, with all of that, there's the Meng Wanzhou case, there's the discussion, face-to-face talks between the United States and China, all of this going on right now. So we thought let's talk about it with the help of our next guest, Ian Young, South China Morning Post, Vancouver's correspondent. Good morning, Ian. Thanks for being back with us.
7: Hi, Simi. How are you?
0: I'm good, thank you. What do you make of all these latest developments? All, it seems like all of a sudden things started to happen.
7: Yeah, well, I think that um, we're in a really interesting phase of Meng Wanzhou's uh, extradition case. We're kind of in the end game. That's due to finish in May, uh, and and um, perhaps by coincidence, perhaps not, um, we're seeing the first legal actions uh, taken in courts, at least against the two Michaels, with uh, um, with Michael Spavel going on a very quick trial uh, yesterday. Um, and and the backdrop of that, of course, is is uh, these big US-China talks going on in Alaska. Um, So, yeah, no, it's a really interesting phase of uh, China's relations with the rest of the world, I guess.
0: Do you think there is a connection then between what goes on at those talks in Alaska and what happens to our two Michaels?
7: Uh, Yes, possibly. Um, I think the Americans have been quite sympathetic to the plight of the two Michaels, and they have said um, that they should be released, and they are uh, victims of arbitrary attention um, by China Um, so that's certainly possible Uh, I doubt though we'll see anything on that publicly Uh, I think that in front of the cameras at least we've seen a lot of posturing from the Americans and the Chinese but what goes on behind closed doors during those talks is a different matter
0: we also saw a number of Canadian diplomats trying to get access uh, to the Michael Spavor trial, not being able to, but we, we, we know that they tried to. Does, does that outside process even seem a little bit more visible to you?
7: Um, you know, the Chinese court system is not transparent. I don't think you can judge the Chinese court system is uh, almost in any way analogous to what goes on here in Canada. Um, you know... I I think that the Chinese courts will do what they're going to do absolutely regardless of what um, those Canadian and other foreign diplomats say and do outside the court. I just don't think that will, um, you know, be part of their considerations at all. The the main consideration of course, will be what the Chinese communist party wants to happen to the two Michaels.
0: Right. Do you think in, is there any pressure being felt by the Chinese government right now or do they just brush it all off?
7: Well, I mean, I think that there's, um, clearly there's some sort of pressure being held there because I think that the view internationally is that the two Michaels were taken in retaliation for um, the way that Meng Wanzhou has been handled. So, you know, to, to that extent, you can say that, yes, that China is responsive, but... You know I mean I, I I think the the idea that you can appeal though, to Beijing uh, to, to, to the, the the better instincts of, of a Chinese government to be merciful to the two Michaels without any sort of quid pro quo. I think that's kind of naive. I think that the understanding is that there, there will be a quid pro quo if you're going to get something out of China on this front.
0: Yes, but who does the quid pro quo come from? Does it come from Canada or is it going to come from these talks with the United States?
7: Um, You know, I don't think that that what Canada says by itself necessarily is going to make that big of a difference because ultimately the fate of Meng Wanzhou may come down to what the United States wants. You know, it may come down to whether or not the United States um, uh, pursues um, uh, the prosecution of Meng Wanzhou, uh, and in any case, the other spanner in the works is is whatever happens in the BC Supreme Court over the next um, over the next couple of months, because uh, it, it could well be that Meng Wanzhou is is ordered released. Yeah,
0: let's talk about that. As you said, we're getting to kind of the end game with that wrapping up in the next what month or so. Uh, what have we heard? Would you say in in recent months in this case?
7: Uh, I think it's been really interesting the way that the Mung's lawyers have really been pressing this idea that she is a victim of an abusive process. This has been an overarching argument. I think it's kind of interesting that this has been happening at the same time that the two Michaels have um, have been meeting their fates as well under very different circumstances. Um, You know, the argument that uh, she wasn't treated fairly by police. Or by or by border agents, or by the FBI, for that matter. Um, you know that's been an overarching argument for the entire case, and it's not an insubstantial one. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether or not it's it's going to hold hold water with just um, Associate Chief Justice Heather Holmes. But, you know, the argument has certainly been allowed that Hmong that s- suffered a, a, an abusive process and that she wasn't treated fairly.
0: I know this has been going on, it feels like, forever now, Ian. But what yes. is this happening right now? Is this going to decide whether or not Meng Wanzhou is sent to the United States or not?
7: No, not necessarily. What will happen is that um, Associate Chief Justice Holmes will decide whether uh, whether she can recommend that or whether it should proceed. She can order Mung released. She can order that it doesn't proceed, but it ultimately will be up to the Justice Minister to decide whether or not uh, to proceed with the extradition. And, of course, it will be up to the United States to decide whether or not it proceeds with the trial. You've observed
0: a lot of cases like this. What, what does it tell you then, your experience, about the situation with the two Michaels? Uh, does it, it doesn't sound like they're coming home anytime soon, though, does it?
7: Well, I mean, I don't think they'll be coming home before Meng Wanzhou's fate is decided. Um, I I do think that they are inextricably entwined. And I think that all three parties involved in this, the United States, Canada and and China, have variously alluded to that, um, despite their protestations that these are, you know, um, entirely separate things. I don't think that they are entirely separate things. Um, and, and China, I, I think, is quite set in the idea that without Meng Wanzhou heading back to China, um, we won't be seeing the two Michaels anytime soon.
0: In following along with the stories that you've been writing, including the, your latest one, uh, it, it seems like it's getting quite tense. Like, tell us about this latest story. What what Meng's lawyer is accusing a Canadian border officer of?
7: Well, she's basically uh, the, the lawyer. Um, the lawyers for Meng Wanzhou have basically been accusing border officers of lying, of lying on the stand, of fabricating their testimony um, about their treatment of Meng Wanzhou and specifically about uh, how Meng Wanzhou's phone passcodes ended up in the hands of the RCMP. Now, those passcodes were obtained by uh, border officers and um, but then they were handed over to the police, and that breached privacy laws in Canada. That should not have happened. Uh, the border officers have said that this was a mistake, that it wasn't supposed to happen, and and um, you know that this was just a piece of paper that was simply in a stack of documents that was inadvertently handed to the police. Uh, and Meng Wanzhou's lawyers say that that's nonsense. That this is um, uh, clear evidence of uh, collusion to investigate Meng Wanzhou illicitly and to gather evidence on behalf of the American FBI.